Brothers and sisters, please open with me to the book of 1 Kings. Our scripture reading this evening will be 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 through 28. We'll read this uh, passage together as we can uh, study uh, this book of the Bible uh, consecutively. We are in the early days of King Solomon's reign. 1 Kings chapter 3. Uh, beginning at verse uh, 16. Let's hear God's word. Uh, Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. Uh, The one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. And there was no one else with us in the house, only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. And the first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. And thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king, and the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. And the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death, for she is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Sends us reading in God's word. Let's uh, seek once again God's face in prayer. Lord, our uh, God in heaven, we uh, pray, O Lord, that we would be granted something of the wisdom of Solomon, or even the greater wisdom of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ, uh, both in understanding this passage, but then ultimately as we live our lives, grant that we would do so for your glory. A blessed word to our hearts, even tonight. Uh, Might we profit from it, we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you ask yourself, how did I possibly get myself in this situation? And whatever shall I do? Well, I certainly think that that kind of thought must have crossed Solomon's mind as he faced this particular a dispute between these two women that had come before him. And yet this passage in in, in 1 Kings uh, 3 really is a pair with the first half of uh, 1 Kings 3. You'll remember last week, Pastor Collins preached on 
Solomon's desire for wisdom. He asked the Lord for wisdom, and we're told that God granted him wisdom. He was pleased with that prayer and answered his request. And the passage today kind of says to us, here's proof that the Lord answered Solomon's prayer. But in giving Solomon this kind of wisdom, it ought to make us as well seek after this kind of wisdom also. We're going to look at this passage under a couple of different heads. First of all, we're going to see a trying case. Secondly, a wise verdict. And then lastly, we're going to make about three points of application. So a trying case, a wise verdict followed by a number of points of application. First of all, we have a trying uh, case. Uh, Here we have, as it were, a life in the day of Solomon. Uh, This particular uh, day, he is rendering his duty as a judge. Two women appear before the king with a dispute. Now, likely their case had been heard, uh, perhaps before some other judge in Israel, Uh, who couldn't decide on a verdict, and so it now comes in a kind of appellate sort of way to the king. Solomon is left to decide this case. And it's really a terribly sad and tragic uh, situation. Uh, There are two women that appear before Solomon. These two women are prostitutes. Uh, What a A horrible uh, profession. They sold their bodies to men, men who were willing to take advantage of them. It was certainly a wicked choice for these women to make, but much like prostitution today, it was a wicked choice that we probably need to set in a kind of context. Certainly they had been victims of abuse or oppression. Uh, They uh, certainly would have been poor probably lonely as well. In fact, that loneliness is shown just in the fact that each of them have a baby and they are completely alone in the house as they have it. The men who helped to create this baby are nowhere to be found. These two women, prostitutes, surely poor, are living alone, each giving birth to a little baby. But they quickly come at odds with one another. And the reason all centers around what happened one particular night. The first woman tells the story uh, that they had uh, each recently uh, given birth. That night they were nursing their babies. They each fall asleep with their babies at their breast. Well, when morning time came, uh, that first woman wakes up to find a baby at her breast, but the baby is dead, a dead child. But then upon closer inspection, she realizes that this wasn't her baby at all. It was the other woman's. And she can simply surmise what had happened during the night, that the other woman must have uh, rolled over upon her child, killed her child accidentally. But then, filled with perhaps anger, certainly disappointment and bitterness, in desperation, Uh, decides to switch babies, takes her dead child, gives it to the woman sleeping, uh, and indeed takes that woman's living child and takes it as her own. At least that's the story that the first woman has. Well, as she is telling that story, suddenly the other woman uh, breaks in and 
immediately rebuts these claims. She says, no, no, the living child, that one is mine, the dead child is yours. You're telling the story wrongly. Well, the first then simply answers, no, the dead child is yours, the living child is mine. And they quickly get into a kind of a shouting match uh, with one another. Two women, one living child, one dead child, women that are alone, that are prostitutes, and absolutely no witnesses to determine which one is telling uh, the truth. Does that sound uh, familiar? Maybe uh, some of you know that uh, if you're perhaps a parent or a teacher or uh, even an employer in the workplace and two people are standing before you, they're in dispute with one another and there is no witness to which one is correct. It's a, an old case of he said, she said, isn't it? That's all that we're left with. Just what each one of these women have uh, said, the case that they uh, make. And it kind of just makes you want to uh, pull your hair out and to give up. Who could possibly give a just verdict in a case without any witnesses? But, you know, the the case is serious at the same time. You can't just uh, give up. Uh, Each of these women have opened themselves to serious charges Uh, You know, if the first woman is correct in what she says, then it means that the other woman is guilty of kidnapping. A crime which, according to Deuteronomy 24-7, is a crime worthy of death. Well, if the second woman is correct, then the first woman is guilty of bringing false charges and being a false witness. Deuteronomy 19, verses 16 through 19 say, that you should do to a false witness just as a false witness meant to do to the other. These are serious charges. And it's a serious situation as well because a child is at stake, the custody of a child. Which mother gets this child? Whose child is this? To whom does this child belong? And who can possibly make that decision? What is Solomon supposed to do. So we have here a trying case. But this moves us now, secondly, to a wise verdict. We find this in verses 23 through 28. A wise verdict. And we're going to see the king's response in a moment. But let me just point out that Solomon's first right step in this all, in this whole matter was to was to hear the case in the first place and to seek to come to a just verdict. Uh, Solomon could have uh, dismissed these women and moved on with his life with little or no consequences. You know, after all, uh, these were just prostitutes. He could have reasoned. Uh, Do whores deserve any of my time? Uh, And if he dismissed their case, what could have these women possibly uh, done? Where could have they gone? One is reminded of the, of the woman that Jesus spoke of in the parable. Do you remember the woman that couldn't get justice against her adversary? And she had to approach that unjust judge time and time and time and time again, pleading for some kind of justice. And the unjust judge finally relented because of her pleading. Well, if Solomon were an unjust judge, he would have simply sent these women away. Go settle the matter on your own. I don't have time for this. But Solomon does not do that. These women would have been considered 
uh, the squalor of society, unworthy of a moment's notice. These were the lowest of the low. And yet here Solomon spends his time listening to them and hearing their case and seeking to render a just verdict. He took seriously his job to do what is just and right. Actually, that same description is given at one point of King David. Uh, that uh, David, uh, when he ruled over all Israel, 2 Samuel 8 and verse 15, he did what was just and right. And in fact, that same requirement of justice and righteousness is required as the king's major responsibility affirmed in several different places in Scripture. 1 Kings 10.9, Jeremiah 22.3 and 22.15, Ezekiel 45.9. We could point to other places as well. It was the king's job to do what is just and what is right. And it is exactly that that Solomon set his mind uh, to doing. It is the glory of kings to search things out, he would write in the book of Proverbs. That's what he does in this instance. And so Solomon seeks to render a just verdict. And after hearing their cases, he handles the matter in this way. He first of all provides a very brief summary of the dilemma. This is a situation. The one says, this is my son that's alive. Your son's dead. The other says, no, but your son is dead. My son is uh, the living one. And so then, without asking any other questions, there's no cross-examination, the Judge simply says this. He says, let's take action. Bring me a sword. And then after the sword is brought to him, he gives us a very simple uh, direction. He says, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. There, the matter is settled. Well, wait a second. (laughs) You can imagine uh, a a sudden sense of exasperation. Uh, Matthew Henry says, about this, that this seemed a ridiculous decision of the case and a brutal cutting of the knot, which he could not untie. Okay, it was a cutting of the knot, as it were, both literally and uh, figuratively in this uh, situation. Let's just cut the baby in two and be done with it. Well, it was his solution as barbarous as it sounds. The answer is not. It was actually a rather brilliant uh, display of wisdom. Because as soon as he says these words, it uh, garners a reaction out of each of the women. One woman immediately responds with horror. And she says, oh, my Lord, give her the living child then, and by no means put him to death. But the other woman then says in her response, no, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Go ahead and divide him. Well, what had, what had Solomon done here? What had he done? Well, Phil Riken, I think, puts it correctly when he says that Solomon had devised a test which would unveil each woman's heart. He had devised a test which would unveil each woman's heart. He knew that the true mother would have such a natural parental love for the child that she would sacrifice greatly 
even her own attachment to the child, and she would make herself even liable to the charge of being a false witness, as we said earlier, that because of her parental love, she would sacrifice greatly for the child's good. And isn't that the same kind of parental love that you do see, even in many uh, non-Christians? People will often do all sorts of things for the good of their children. And this, by the way, is perhaps why the sin of abortion is so revolting. It flies in the face, even, of what ought to be so natural. That is, that of parental love for our children. Well, he knew that the real mother would have that kind of sacrificial love that was willing, even at great expense to herself, to spare the life of the child and to do what was good for the baby. But Solomon also knew that if indeed that second woman had switched the babies, that the motive of that woman would have been that of envy. And you think about it, if that second woman had swap the babies indeed, she was willing to defraud the other woman of her baby in order to satisfy her jealousy. She was angry and bitter that her child had died. So it does not matter what that other woman experiences, I have to have her baby. Everything was, as it were, sacrificed at the altar of her own envy and her own jealousy being uh, met. Now, again, she was filled with grief, certainly. But instead of turning her griefs, as it were, over to the Lord, she sins greatly. And because that was the ruling motive of her own heart, then when the king says, well, let's cut the baby in two and divide the baby, that this woman then says, well, okay, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Go ahead and divide him. If I don't get a baby, then nobody does. And she was satisfied with that answer. Well, this was enough for Solomon to decide uh, the matter. His simple and ingenious action had revealed the state of their hearts. The knot was cut, as it were. But the baby wasn't. But the baby returned to the true mother, and justice was done. And everyone marveled at Solomon's uh, wisdom. We read here that all Israel had heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Solomon had rendered an extraordinarily wise verdict in this particular case. So a trying case, and then we see Solomon's wise verdict. But now let's, lastly, consider a number of points of application. I have three of them in particular, which I think we can apply uh, to our own lives today. And the first of those points of application is this. It is that those who are in positions of leadership must seek to practice justice and to do so impartially. That those in positions of leadership must seek to practice justice and to do so impartially. 
Solomon, I believe, in this passage is a shining example of doing just this. As we mentioned earlier, these two women were prostitutes, considered the, the squalor of Israelite society. And yet Solomon did not dismiss them, but he valued them. He listened to the case carefully, and he used every resource at his disposal, exercising tremendous wisdom in order to seek out justice and to do it in this case. He had a responsibility even to the prostitutes who were within his nation. And he exercised that responsibility fairly. There is a lesson for us in that. That there are some of you who are in positions of authority. It might be that you are a parent. Or that you are in a position of leadership in the church. Maybe you are a teacher over a classroom. Perhaps you uh, have responsibility as a boss with employees under you in the workplace. Maybe you are in a position of civil leadership. And if you are in a position of authority, then you are called to exercise leadership and to do so justly for the good of those who are under you. You are to value them, that you consider their cases carefully, and when disputes arise, that you seek to exercise justice and to seek fairness. Do not consider some people to be unimportant or unworthy of your time. Uh, The temptation often is going to be, I don't have time for this, or that person isn't worthy of my Efforts, or it is to decide a case unfairly in a way that benefits you rather than seeking out justice. It's to consider, at times, the temptation is uh, to consider which, uh, uh, how, how might this make my life easier? And we need to remember that the people under us don't exist to make our lives easier, but rather God has put us in a responsibility a position of responsibility toward them. And in fact, one of the greatest blessings to any society, to any family, to any workplace, to any school, one of the greatest blessings is an impartial, fair leader who takes that responsibility very seriously to do what is best, to render justice, even at expense to themselves, to do what is best for the people that are under them. We need to pray for those who are in positions of leadership. Pray for our political leaders, that they would render uh, judgment not out of self-interest, but out of care for those that are under them. That we would uh, be those as Christians who show kindness and love by the kind of leadership that we exercise, a leadership of justice, and of fairness. So it's a lesson for those in leadership today. But then the second application is this. It is simply the question, do you need wisdom? Then ask God who delights to give it. You see, Solomon, in his position, 
was one who needed wisdom. That's why he cried out to God in the way that he did in the passage last week. And he, when the Lord would, was willing to grant him anything, he asked not for honor and riches for himself, but for a wise and an understanding heart. Dear friends, you and I, if we have been placed in a position of responsibility, then we need to ask God for a wise and an understanding heart. You should feel your need for wisdom keenly. Whatever jobs and responsibilities that you've been given, do you recognize you cannot do these things on your own? And if you think that you can, it's probably the first a real indication that you can't because you're full of pride. Dear friends, we need the help of the Lord. We need the wisdom that God alone can grant. And the lesson of Holy Scripture is that we serve a God who delights to give wisdom to those who ask it. There's a beautiful connection in our, in our Bibles here between verse 9 and verse 28. After Solomon made this decision, verse 28, we're told that all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. They stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. And back in verse 9, the language that Solomon used in his asking was that same language. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? It's actually the, the same word. It's translated differently in the English. But the same word for wisdom is used. The same word for justice is actually used in those two passages. God had answered Solomon's prayer for wisdom. Well, as readers of our New Testaments, this ought not to surprise us. Because James chapter 1 gives us that promise that if any of you lacks wisdom, verse 5, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Do you lack wisdom? Ask God and do not doubt that he delights to give it. What situations are you in that you need wisdom, how to act? As a parent, do you often say, I don't know what I'm doing? Okay, in the workplace. Okay, in, uh, if you're in a position of leadership, whatever it is, do you say, Lord, Lord, I need your help. Then ask the Lord for wisdom and he delights to give it. You might say, does he really give wisdom? Well, that's why the Lord included this whole thing out of 1 Kings 3. You see that passage last week, it said, Solomon asked for wisdom, God gave him wisdom. That should have been enough for us, right? Solomon asked, God gave. The Lord knows our own doubting hearts, and so he says, oh, you're still doubting that I gave it to him? Let me prove it to you. 1 Kings 3, 16 through 28. You see, I did it. I really did it. I gave Solomon wisdom when he asked. And friends, same with us. Do you believe that God gives wisdom to those who ask? He really, really does. God does this for his people. So the first two applications, those in positions of leadership must seek to practice justice. Secondly, we need to ask God for the wisdom that we need. 
But then the third point of application is this. It is that Solomon's wisdom points us to the much greater wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the same point was made last week, but can we just kind of double underline it once again? Here we see Solomon's wisdom beautifully displayed. We read this incident and we just say, along with the people of Israel, verse 28, we say, wow, here is a man who knew exactly what to say. I don't think I would have come up with that. I think I would have still been wondering what to do, what to say. And Solomon, you did it just like that. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Well, dear friends, as we marvel at Solomon's wisdom, let's remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 12 and verse 42, when he said how the queen of Sheba came from the very ends of the earth to seek out the wisdom of Solomon. He said, yet behold... A greater than Solomon is now here. Oh, friends, however much you marvel at the wisdom of Solomon, think this is but a pale comparison to the infinite wisdom of my gracious King and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the book of Isaiah, in the great messianic prophecy of Isaiah chapter 11, which speaks of, Uh, this uh, Messiah yet to come. There in Isaiah 11, beginning at verse 2, I'll begin at verse 1. Listen to these words. It says that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. What spirit? It says the spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Dear friends, a greater than Solomon is here. For there, the prophet Isaiah looked forward to this one, the Messiah, who would be absolutely filled with that spirit of wisdom and understanding. And so in Colossians 2 and verse 3, perhaps one of the greatest Christological passages of the entire New Testament describing the infinite worth and glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ when it goes to describe who is Christ in His very being, it is this. He is the one in whom, we are told, Colossians 2.3, are hidden in the person of Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. Our Lord Jesus is our infinitely wise Savior, and do you have any idea what comfort this should bring to the believer in the midst of this world? We live in a world racked by injustice of every kind. It seems that often that which is unrighteous is declared righteous. We often live, we live in a world in which we don't know what to do or where to turn. The promise of Scripture is is that there is a king who sits at the very right hand of God, 
who exercises all wisdom and all justice. He does what is right. He always does what is right. And chiefly, dear friends, in his wisdom, he has brought forth a way of salvation for sinful and fallen man that we who are sinners might be brought back to God. He's the all-wise Savior. So this ought to bring us a comfort. You know, there's, there's so much anger and there's so much anxiety in the world in which we live. This has been called an age of anxiety. I feel like we, we face it in the world in, in which we, in which we uh, live. Uh, politically, both on the right and on the left, uh, people are upset and they're angry. And I think that so much of it, dear friends, is a result of people fearing injustice in this world. Uh, a person gets into a dispute with their neighbor. And they get angry. How could my neighbor do this or say that or do the other? A person gets a wrong grade from a professor at college. How dare my professor do that to me? Or there is a, 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 a government that fails to uphold the, uh, uphold the law. What are they doing? Why can't they do what is right? Or perhaps in the workplace, you don't receive a promotion when you should, and somebody else gets it instead of you. And it creates a bitterness in your soul. Uh, there's a people group that is regularly and systematically oppressed, and it makes you angered. There's the threat of persecution in our world. Dear friends, each of these are cases of injustice, and what are we as Christians called to do? On the one hand, I think legitimately we are called to seek justice and try to promote justice where we are able and to call for justice. Okay, That's, Those are appropriate responses. But dear friends, is it not the case that as Christians also that we are ultimately, ultimately to rest in a God and in a Savior who does what is just and what is right. And so amidst the calls for justice which go out in our world in which we live, shouldn't it look a little different, at least among Christians, that the edge is taken away, that there's not the same kind of anger or bitterness that we see in the world, not the same kind of anxiety that my life is going to fall apart if things don't turn out just the way that I expect that they should. And why is that? Because we have an infinitely wise and glorious Savior, far wiser than Solomon ever, ever was, sitting on the throne of the universe. And he is doing all things right. And we can rest ourselves in that. We can rest ourselves in that. Dear friends, if Solomon gained such renown in Israel for the wisdom that he had, should we not give our glorious Savior even greater renown for the wisdom that he has? Praise him. Make his name known for his greatness among his people. Let's pray together. 
Lord, our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do have this one who is even wiser than wise Solomon. That he sits on the throne of the universe. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. He does what is right. And Lord, might we rest ourselves in this infinitely glorious Savior. And we pray, O Lord our God, that even as Christ is in him has hidden all those treasures of wisdom and knowledge, would you not, Lord Jesus, grant wisdom to your needy people? We do need it. You have given us positions of responsibility and authority. You have given us duties to accomplish. And Lord, we want to do them well for the glory of your name, for the sake of your kingdom, for the good of those that are under us. Give to us wisdom, we pray, and make us quick to ask for it as well. Lord, our God, do these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's now uh, respond uh, together. We're going to sing the hymn, Savior Like a Shepherd, uh, Lead Us. It's hymn number 599 in our hymnals. Hymn number 599 as we speak of our wise, tender shepherd leading us his sheep and giving us the wisdom that we need. Hymn number 599. Jesus! 
Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.